0: It's a great joy to speak to you tonight, and I hope you'll be encouraged. So if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to look at this verse 6 of Acts chapter 1 to verse 11. But uh, just to kind of remind you of what I said last week, remember we started a little introduction, and I said to you that um, Acts as a book was always connected with Luke. Uh, Luke and Acts were two parts of the same story. And uh, in the first century, as the letters of Paul started to be circulated, in one volume called The Writings of the Apostle, the four Gospels began to be circulated in another document called The Gospel, and so for the first time, Luke and Acts were separated from each other, and Acts kind of took on its own, a life of its own, and it became this kind of bridge between the letters of Paul, and validated very much in terms of the letters, what Paul said, and how it's kind of a very accurate description of where he traveled and what he did, and so Acts became the connection between the Gospels and the letters, and that's why it's so important. I also said to you, secondly, that it took on an apologetic kind of role as well when in the second century, a guy called Marcion, who was an avid Paul uh, fan, he decided that everyone had misunderstood Paul's teachings, and he was the only one who knew what Paul was talking about. And he was one of the Gnostic kind of teachers. And he basically said that um, all the people that held to any kind of Jewish tradition, the apostles, and everyone that had gone before were wrong. Paul was the only one who had it right. And the God of the Old Testament was a vindictive, unkind, evil God called the Demiurge, who was a lesser God who created the world. And the true God, fully revealed to us came in Christ Jesus and um, so he separated the Old and New Testament and he tried to go to Rome and say we actually need to make a new canon of scripture and of course this stimulated the whole debate and about who Jesus was and how we need to understand Jesus and so in that sense Acts became a very important part of church history as well as it validated so much of Paul's life and they were able to look at the book of Acts and talk about some some things So that's what I said to you last week, and now we're going to look at verse 6 to 11 um, today, and I want to talk to you about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we're going to look at Jesus' ascension and how those two things affect our lives so profoundly. So I'm reading from the ESV, I think. Am I? No, the (laughs) NRV. Okay, I really know what I'm doing. Um, The NRV. So it says this in verse 6. So when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. It's a beautiful portion and a wonderful portion, and uh, in some ways, it's really hard to get your head around actually what's happening here, but I'll do my best to communicate well. But we know the first chapter of Acts deals with the 40-day period after Jesus' resurrection in which He regularly appeared to His disciples, and He talked to them about various things. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, He talked to them primarily about the kingdom of God what the kingdom of God was, and how they could understand that. And it's sometime during that 40-day period that the disciples ask this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the asking of that question shows that the apostles, the original disciples, were still a little bit confused and puzzled. And they were asking this question, but didn't really get yet fully what Jesus had come to do, because all that had transpired in the previous weeks had not gone according to their expectation. Um, When the apostles were called by Jesus as fishermen, and he taught them for three years in Galilee, they thought they were signing on for some kind of restoration movement for the Jewish nation. They believed that Jesus had been appointed by God to be the true king of Israel like David was in the Old Testament. And um, that he was kind of waiting in the wings really to take his throne, to take his authority. And they really did believe that Jesus was the true king of Israel. Even though many more people in uh, Palestine were a little bit suspicious of Jesus and um, his ragtag bunch of followers. These fishermen and tax collectors and uh, you know, people that just didn't fit together following this carpenter this motley crew and they had this expectation that jesus was going to be a king in the traditional sense of government and power and that's why i remember james and john towards the end of jesus ministry they get this james's mother says to jesus when your kingdom comes you know can my sons be your main men can can they be the head of the cabinet kind of, you know. Can they sit on your side, one on the right and one on the left? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, and he makes it quite clear that's not what he's about. And so they thought that Jesus was going to be this king that restored Israel with his extraordinary healing power, his miracles, his visionary teaching. And so their vision for Jesus really was one of government. Essentially it was a political vision that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel in a political way. And as a result of that, uh, many Jews believed that when God did restore the kingdom of Israel, the whole world would be turned upside down. And uh, if you know the history of Israel, they had been oppressed by many nations for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Romans, They had oppressed Israel for centuries, and so their longing of their heart was, God, we want to be free. We, We don't want to be ruled by anyone, actually, and the prayer was, when you restore your kingdom, please turn it upside down so that Israel will be the ruler over the nations. Yes, and if you go and read, for example, Psalm 72 or Psalm 89, or if you read Isaiah from chapter 40 to verse 55, the language is God restore your, your kingdom to the people of Israel so that we can rule and reign over others and that wickedness is going to be crushed, that your kingdom is going to come and your rule is going to happen, and that's what we're longing for. Yep. And that's the longing of their hearts. And it's, it's summed up in this question, will you go, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what they're longing for. That's what they're waiting for. And yet, they hadn't expected that Jesus would die a violent death. <laughs> and the crucifixion made it look like they'd been wrong all along in their expectations about Jesus and who he was. He wasn't going to be Messiah. They weren't going to get the top cabinet positions. There wasn't going to be a new government. Israel wasn't going to be restored. The Romans were going to carry on ruling. It was going to be business as usual. The rich and powerful oppressing the poor and the weak. Nothing was going to change. And they were devastated. And then, in the midst of their Confusion and what's going on? And Jesus is dead. He rises from the grave. He confuses them again. He confounds them again. And he's, he, he rises from the, from, from the grave and it turns their dreams again on its head. And so this question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They must have thought, well, here are dreams for our nation are getting back on track. And uh, Jesus is going to uh, bring it all back together again. And so, that was that w- what's going to happen? Well, I want to answer in two ways, with both a yes and a no simultaneously. You see, because Jesus starts in verse 7 when he's talking about his kingdom and he says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed. By his own authority. And so some things do remain a secret about God's kingdom. There are lots of details about the kingdom that we still don't know. That are withheld from us. But the prophecies of the Old Testament give us an overview of God's plan for his kingdom. But they don't supply all the details of what's going to happen and the timing of what's going to happen. And that is... It's vital because what it forces us to do is to ask God what he's doing and hear his voice so that we can continue to cooperate with him and make something of his kingdom come on earth. So I think God does that on purpose. But secondly, and most importantly, the death and the resurrection of Jesus literally changed everything. It turned everything on its head. And one of the things that had to change was the apostles' dream of what the kingdom was going to be. It wasn't going to be an ordinary earthly kingdom with governmental roles and administrative power. And when Jesus spoke about his kingdom, he was talking about something completely different. And he was not just talking about heaven either. Because sometimes people, unfortunately, when they, they get to Acts and they read this, they think about, well, Jesus must just be talking about heaven. And when we see his ascension, it's like he's leaving this earth and he's, he's going to heaven. So he, he must, be, must be talking about heaven. And I don't think Jesus is also saying that the whole of our lives here on earth are somehow getting us ready for heaven one day, where there's going to be no suffering and there's going to be no sickness and there's going to be only joy, peace, and worship and good things. And that's, you know, Jesus is not really saying that this life on earth doesn't really matter very much. You know, it's all about heaven. We need to worry about getting to heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus' kingdom is about at all. Like, earth is ultimately a place we need to escape from and get to heaven. Yeah? And that's not what I think Jesus is saying Absolutely at all. Not at all. Luke is saying, he's reminding us, that God's kingdom has fully come in Jesus and through Jesus and through his death and his resurrection. He simply reaffirms the story of the Gospels. And the work of Jesus continues in the world, not by taking everybody out of the world up into heaven, but by God's people here on earth bringing something of the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. Through their lives, so that the reign and the rule of God starts to be seen by people through the lives of ordinary believers, as we live out our lives, something of heaven begins to come and touch earth. Yes. Amen. That's what it means to live a Christian life. And so, added to this fact is is the... The difficult thing that the kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully come. It's come in Jesus. It's been heralded in Jesus. And we we are called to be those that speak about the the coming of the king and his kingdom. But it's not yet fully come. It comes completely and fully again when Jesus will come back, and we'll talk about that in a short while. But we have this vital role to play in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Right now, right here in our lives, in the midst of pain and suffering, in the midst of bad things in the world, we are called to bring the kingdom here on earth through our lives. Amen. And so how do we do that? Well, how's that going to happen? Verse 8 tells us plainly, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Je- Jesus doesn't make it difficult. He says, this is going to happen. This is my kingdom. My kingdom has come, and this is how you're going to live it out. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we encourage people in their own lives to make a difference in their families, in their own communities, and in their universities, and in their workplace, and in Hertfordshire, and in London, and in the UK, and in Europe, and to the ends of the earth. We do all of that simultaneously. Why? Because we are being obedient to the call that Jesus said, for all of us, you will receive power. And part of receiving power, again, I can see the flicks of Spittle. When you receive power... You will be my witness here, there, there, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the call that all of us have as Christians. And that's how God's kingdom goes forward by the power of the Spirit, starting where we are and spreading out in concentric circles to touch the whole world. And we get to be part of it. Yes, come on. And so the resurrection of, of Jesus and his ascension means that Jesus was being enthroned as Israel's king. He was not only being enthroned as Israel's king, but the king of the whole world. He is the king of the universe. And his ascension and his resurrection were the affirmation and the coronation of the great king. And that changes everything. And boom, everything is different from that point on. And so we are called to be Witnesses. Remember Philippians 2 verse 10 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we are called to be witnesses, to be heralds of that good news to the whole world, saying there's a king and his name is Jesus and he rules the world and his kingdom is coming on earth and you can be part of that kingdom as he transforms you from the inside out and begins to transform your life and change all those around you through your life. Amen. And that's what we're called to be witnesses of. So we live between these two this tension of what Jesus has done now already and what the fullness of what still has to come, the fullness of the kingdom that comes back when he comes again, we live in the in-between part. And what we are called to faithfully do in the in-between is be faithful witnesses and heralds to the kingdom and the king. That's what we're called to do. And so do you notice there's also a little thing I want to point out in verse 7. You notice there's a a difference, it says, between authority and power. Ultimately, it says God has all authority. None of us have authority. Ultimately, God has all authority over all things. I don't have any authority other than what God gives me through my life. But he holds authority for the whole universe. But his promise to us is that we will receive power. Amen? Amen? So ultimately, whatever our task or role is, we don't have ultimate authority that only comes from God. But we are promised power. And remember I said 1 Corinthians 3, when it talks about um, the power of the Spirit, it uses the word dynamis. Dynamis, it's exactly the same word here. You will receive dynamis. You will receive dynamite power, Holy Spirit power. And that's that's the Greek. And we're going to need that power if we are going to be witnesses to all the ends of the earth, if we are going to be brave to tell our friends and our family about Jesus and who He is and what He's done in our lives. We're going to need that dynamis power that we don't shrink back. We don't get nervous. We need that power. If we're going to pray for the sick. We need power. Not confidence, oh, I can do this. No, no. Jesus... My confidence is in you, that you can heal the sick, and I'm going to pray faithfully. Amen? And so, that's what our task is, is to be faithful witnesses to the King and the kingdom, and what is inaugurated, what has come in Jesus, that we are faithful heralds of that, while we are waiting for that moment where He comes back in all glory again. Amen? That's my first little point. Second point is this. I want to talk to you a little bit about the ascension, and this is where I hope we can find something of God in the language because it's very, very difficult to describe. So here we have, in verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things, after he had told them about being witnesses and the power that was going to come by the Holy Spirit, as they were looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, there were two men, stood by them in white clothes in white robes like the angels at the resurrection same language same picture and then it says the angels say men of galilee why do you stand looking up into heaven jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go so you see now when the bible speaks the biblical language when it speaks about heaven it means the space where god is all right And earth can mean the physical earth, but really when the Bible speaks about earth, it speaks about the space that we are. Yeah? So the the heaven is where God is, his space, his dimension. Earth is our space, our dimension in which we exist. And these are really interlocking spheres of two halves of the same sphere. God's reality and our reality are interlocking. And uh, the best way I can think of trying to describe what I'm saying is you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful children's book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, you all read that book. And what happens in that book is when the children go into the wardrobe, they are in one particular space, one particular dimension, and suddenly when they go through the wardrobe, they are in an equally real, completely different dimension where Aslan rules and reigns. And Aslan is king and he's supreme. And it's a picture for us of what, the, of what it's like to be here on earth and yet at the same time have the reality of the dimension of God and his kingdom that is as real, but we're just not yet fully seeing it yet. Am I explaining it well? That's why the Bible speaks about heaven in this way. And so it's interlocking spheres of God's reality. Heaven is not, as many people think, a happy place that we go when we die. And in this sense, the church does have some responsibility because there are many songs and hymns from the 19th and 20th century which speak about heaven as being our home. Yes? Like, we don't belong here on earth. Where we really belong is heaven, and heaven is our home, and we want to go there because, you know, in heaven, in the presence of God, there's no pain and no suffering and no nothing evil, and of course that is a wonderful thing. But it's like we have to escape this world and get to the place where everything's perfect, heaven. Like we must leave this place so we can get to that place called heaven. And it's not really the biblical language because as we see over and over in the scripture, the language of the Bible is that we are not going to place disembodied spirits for eternity. thats, a, that's I've said this before. That's a Greek idea. The Greeks believed that. The Greeks believed that your, your body was evil, and it was fallen, and there was nothing good in your body, but your spirit was good, and it was eternal, and it lived forever. So the important thing is not what happened to your body, but what happens to your spirit. Yes? And so for Greek people, eternal life had to do with a spiritual reality and not a physical one. And that's never been the biblical language. The biblical language is there's going to be a new physical earth, a new heaven, and a new earth where we get to live in glorified bodies that we can recognize that have some sense of being uh, recognizable and physical, but they are glorified, and so it's not about being a disembodied spirit kind of somewhere up in the netherworld there. No, it's about living in a new heaven and a new earth in a glorified body and reigning and ruling with Jesus. That's the picture that the Bible paints about our final destination. And when that, while we are waiting for that final destination, we do get to go to a place called heaven where God is, where there's perfect peace. And while we wait for the final Glorification of all things. And we are at peace in that place. I think of it like the best hotel you're ever going to be in in all your life while you're waiting for Jesus to come back. And you're going to know that he's coming back and there's no pain, there's no, nothing there of anything that is evil, only perfection, only worship, only God's presence. And then we wait for that final day when all things will be made new and we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. In glorified, wonderful perfect bodies you see and that's why jesus he's the only one his resurrected body was the only one that was comfortable in both god's god's dimension and earth's dimension and that's why jesus could appear and suddenly disappear that's why he could be in one place and suddenly in another place. That's why he could suddenly be in the midst of them and just and dis- disappear. That's why he could eat fish with them and they knew it was him. He could point to his hands and his feet and say, look at the wounds. They could recognize it was him, but he was glorified. And because he was glorified in a heavenly body, he could do extraordinary things. Yeah, He was at home in both. In God's reality and in the physical space of earth. He was perfectly at home in both. And so part of the point of Jesus' resurrection is that he was inaugurating the beginning of this renewal of all things in which this is going to be the normal thing for all of us in glorif- when we are glorified, to live like that. And so it wasn't just that Jesus was alive again, but the cross had dealt such a, decisive blow to evil the main force of evil death itself that his creative power wasn't held back anymore by sin or human rebellion and it burst out in new life and began to produce the reality of this new heaven and new earth together in the person of Jesus I'm doing my best to describe this but I hope I'm doing a good job and that's what the resurrection is about and that's why we speak in such an amazing way about the resurrection transforming everything and so That's why it's really important when we look at the language of of Luke describing Jesus' ascension, and he's being ascended to heaven. None of the early Christians, Luke or any of the others, thought that Jesus had become the first spaceman heading off into space somewhere that if you've searched long enough, you're going to find Jesus out in space somewhere. You know, one of the first Russian astronauts when he went up, uh, one of the first guys that did... um, Moon things, he said. Uh, I went to heaven. And I went up there, and I didn't see heaven. Didn't see heaven. Well, you see, that's exactly how many people think. Heaven is not up there. It's not somewhere out there in the sort of universe somewhere. Heaven is God's space, where He dwells, where He is. And I think of it like this: is there's a curtain right here, and when I die, the curtain is drawn back. And I simply go from one side of the curtain to the other. I step into the wardrobe and through the other side. And there, Aslan rains. And so, early Christians believed heaven and earth were interlocking spheres of God's reality. And that you could enjoy both and so Jesus resurrected body anticipates this time where everything is going to be renewed and joined together and perfected and so that's why Luke says that Jesus was lifted up he wasn't it wasn't going into a space mission, mission. he was going into God's space God's dimension and do you notice the language it says a cloud took him out of their sight where have we heard about clouds in the scripture before all over. Old Testament, New Testament. The pillar of cloud when the Israelites were going through the desert, pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When they dedicated the temple, what happened? A cloud so filled the temple that they could not stand. It's a symbol of God's presence. In the transfiguration, what happened? A cloud covered Jesus and Moses and, and Elijah, so they could not see. The, the biblical language is is where God's presence is, the cloud is, the Shekinah glory is, and we cannot see anymore because that's where God is. Same language. And so when Jesus is lifted up, it says a cloud covered him from their sight. In other words, he was in God's dimension now. He was in God's presence. And they couldn't see anymore. The veil was between and they had not yet stepped through. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so... Jesus uses the same language in in, uh, Mark 13, if you remember, when he talks about the peruse, the second coming of the Son of Man. And he says, the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power. Do you know that scripture? Or Daniel 7, the same thing, speaking about the Son of Man coming in glory to receive a kingdom, a powerful kingdom. And it talks about the same thing. He will come in clouds and in power and in glory. And it's the symbol of God's Shekinah, his presence, his His goodness, and where He is, the fullness of His presence is. And so that's what Luke is saying to us here. Jesus has gone into God's dimension of reality, and He'll be back on that day when that future perfection, that future dimension, and our present reality are brought together in a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what we long for. And so what is the appropriate response for us to this amazing, amazing, amazing news is to worship and to pray. And that's why I said to you, worship is such an amazing thing because when we are lost in worship and when we are lost in prayer, something of the reality of God begins to intersect with our reality and we know Him in an amazing way and that's why worship is so amazing. (laughs) that's why you can be in worship and you just come out transformed and you don't even know what happened but you were just you came into the room in one way with depression and with anxiety and you just worshiped and something happened and god met with you and it's like heaven came a little bit into your space and for a moment you were in the space where god is and then you leave different (laughs) that's why worship is so amazing and that's what we are called to do we are called to worship and pray while we wait so that heaven comes in begins to transform us from the inside and we live differently and so if you look here uh, in verse 4 it says after the ascension if you go and have a look it says they went the disciples go back to Jerusalem have I gone too long? Jerusalem and they pray they give themselves to prayer. verse 14 They read his word, they prayed, they worshiped, they were all together. Why? Because where we worship and pray, while we're still on earth, we bring something of the life of heaven to where we are, and we are in the space where Jesus is, and that's why it's so refreshing to worship together. And so uh, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see there are many examples and signs to us of these muddled, human, fallen, imperfect apostles and believers each finding as they go forward that their lives are somehow intersected with the story of the resurrected Christ and they are beginning to learn to do all that he taught and all that he said they should do and they're muddling themselves forward and as they do, they pray and they worship and and heaven is transforming them and and they are starting to get it right and they're starting to love him and they go through suffering with a smile on their face with joy and they are killed and they are crucified and they don't give up because they've been touched by heaven. The resurrected Jesus has transformed them from the inside. And so I want to encourage you. That's why we want these times in the evening to be times of worship and prayer. Because when you worship, something of heaven comes and touches your life. And the reality of God's space begins to intersect with you and your imperfect space here. And it begins to soften you and transform you. Amen. Amen. This is good news.